0: You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. Welcome to Equus Farm Calls, where we take horse owners along with us to discuss important topics on equine health and care with industry experts. Today, we're talking to Dr. Erica McKenzie about equine muscle disorders. Equus Farm Calls is brought to you in 2022 by Farnham. Keep your horse happy and healthy and get rewarded with free products at the same time. Farnham Horse Health Products and VitaFlex Pro are proud to celebrate the partnership between you and your horse. So they created the Horse Care Loyalty Rewards Program. It's their way of giving back and provides an opportunity for you to earn complimentary full-size supplements, fly control, and grooming products that you use regularly. Receive one free product for every five purchased at any online or local retail store. View a complete list list of eligible products at horsecareloyalty.com. Enroll today and start earning your rewards. I'm Kim Brown, group publisher of the Equine Health Network. Dr. McKenzie is a specialist in large animal medicine and sports medicine and rehabilitation. She is a professor of large animal internal medicine, Oregon State University, and her research interests are largely related to exercise physiology and muscle function. Thank you, Dr. McKenzie, for joining us today on Equus Farm Calls to talk about equine muscle disorders. Thank you for hosting me. Yeah, it's definitely a topic dear to my heart. Well, it sounds like it. Well, let's just jump right in. So what are a couple of the most common muscle disorders that horse owners might face? Probably the most important one that owners would encounter most
1: commonly is some form of tying up. And that's certainly the lay term for a horse that becomes stiff uh, during or after exercise. Well, sometimes surprisingly, when they encounter a situation that makes them anxious or upset, such as loading onto a trailer or or an event like that. Um, But the typical case that we see is a horse that is exercising and during the uh, exercise work may start to slow down, become sweaty, um, seem distressed, might become stiffer and stiffer, or a horse that looks very, very stiff after completing its exercise. Um, And so to me, that's probably uh, the most obvious disorder that clients will encounter Uh, I do think it's important that we recognize that they are the classic cases and that this disease can be serious and what we call subclinical, where the horse can have significant evidence of severe muscle damage on blood work, for example, but you might not know that the horse actually has any um, muscle damage. You might not recognize stiffness or lameness or red urine as a sign of severe muscle damage. Well, sometimes uh, the horses can present with signs that are confusing, that don't look like tying up to owners or sometimes even vets. So that would be signs of colic, for example, pawing the ground, trying to lay down, rolling uh, or becoming recumbent. Or sometimes horses can present with bad behavior like rearing, bucking, etc. And they're actually having muscle pain. So... Tying up really runs the spectrum in terms of the clinical signs that you see. It's very
0: easy for it to be overlooked or confused with other disorders when it's not a classic presentation. And I've actually had a mare that had type 1 PSSM and didn't know it when I purchased her. She had never tied up. She was, you know, 10 years old when I got her, but I moved her from Wyoming to Kentucky. Suddenly she's out on grass and I'm working her and she just gets, she was never a, a, a horse that would refuse to do things but it was like i don't want to canter i don't want to trot i don't you know and she was i I thought, being obstinate but she wasn't an obstinate horse so i stopped myself and got off and she could barely move and it was just i wondered if i maybe i'd missed some clinical signs on that yeah it's a very
1: challenging situation and um unfortunately Uh, We do see it quite commonly where horses are presenting for complaints like bad behavior when they actually do have underlying disease. And it can be just as frustrating for the veterinarians as for the client, believe me. (laughs) But um, certainly uh, it's not uncommon to have an experience like yours where a horse has previously been normal and never been recognized to have disease. And sometimes will develop signs of this disorder very late in life. I've had horses even present at 17 or 18 years of age with their first tying up event Now, these horses have had underlying disease their entire life, but if something changes about their management or their riding schedule, the way that they're fed, um, you know, factors like that can certainly induce episodes in horses that previously were not clinical.
0: Yeah and we we may talk a little bit about some genetic testing and things a little later in the show but let's let's go on so tying up is is one of those that you see what what should a horse owner look for in a horse that might have a tying up disorder
1: yeah as i said the the signs can certainly run the gamut so the typical case is going to be a horse that becomes um, stiff sweaty uh, during exercise and may refuse to continue on with the task. Um, so a lameness that kind of gets worse as the horse goes versus warming up and warming out of it, for example, um, excessive sweating, high heart rates, uh, maybe high respiratory rates would all be kind of clinical signs of concern. But um, we have to realize that some horses will exercise um, well beyond their capacity, even when they are diseased. You know, I've had research horses with tying up disorders that will run themselves into the ground on the treadmill for example because they just want to work so badly and it's one of the challenges we have with our endurance horses is some of those horses are having significant episodes of muscle disease during the race but the veterinarians may not see clinical signs that alert them to that if no one sees that horse urinate red urine and the horse doesn't look overtly lame it may go on and continue racing and we've certainly seen horses finish um, races with ck values which in a normal horse would be under 600 that are in the hundreds of thousands and so these endurance wow. horses just continue to do their work
0: yeah that's that's a, a good point to make dr McKenzie. so what is another common equine muscle disorder that horse owners might end up facing
1: well i'd, I'd say if we stay with tying up for the time being because it's such a big topic I would want people to understand the the disorders that can contribute to that. So your experience is very common, which is having a horse with what we call type 1 PSSM. And this is probably the best characterized tying up disorder that we have. And it's very common in quarter horses, paints, appaloosas, uh, but also crosses a a wide range of other breeds. When we look at... um, the standard breads and thoroughbreds, they're given a disorder called recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis. Um, it's a slightly unfortunate name because pretty much any repeat tying up could theoretically be called recurrent exertional rhabdomyolysis, but that's the disorder that we believe causes problems in uh, thoroughbreds and standardbreds. And the underlying uh, disease process is very different for PSSM1 versus versus RER. So PSSM1, we know it's related to a disorder of glycogen regulation that we have a a validated genetic test for. Uh, Unfortunately for RER, uh, the underlying disorder appears to link to calcium regulation in the muscle, and there is no scientifically validated test, so we can't test for this disease uh, at this time. Um, And then you have these other kind of uh, more peripheral disorders, polysaccharide storage myopathy type 2 uh, myofibrillar myopathy, which is probably the newest disorder that Dr. Valberg and I started working on in 2014 in the Arabian horses, and then potentially also um, malignant hypothermia. And uh, unfortunately, even though polysaccharide storage myopathy 2 and myofibrillar myopathy are probably quite common disorders we have no scientifically validated genetic test for them. So we can only at this time test for polysaccharide storage myopathy 1 uh, and the malignant hypothermia defect, which is much much rarer, uh, as the tying up disorders that have validated tests available. None of the others at this time have scientifically validated tests um, that are available, which is unfortunate because it's an easy way to get an answer about your potential muscle disorder, right? But I also Absolutely. Absolutely. Think- Another important thing about genetic testing is that just because the horse carries the defect, as you've seen, doesn't necessarily mean they'll have clinical signs of disease, right? So it does rely on having the factors in place to bring out the signs of disease in that animal. Uh, so the, the genetic capacity alone does not mean that the horse is going to have clinical disease with that problem.
0: Yeah, and you know there there are a lot of exacerbating circumstances you get a horse and again you you ask the past history and you may that you know in the situation they were in maybe you're going to do endurance with your arab and previously they were just trail riding their arab even if it's low level endurance so it's a different type of stress and strain so what else what other might horse owners face that are are equine muscle disorders
1: I think the next biggest category that I'm interested in and that I see reasonably commonly would be uh, the nutritional disorders. And so when we're talking about the nutritional disorders, we're generally referring to a deficiency, and that would be of either selenium or vitamin E or sometimes both um, Selenium is a, is a very regional deficiency, so a lot of areas in the United States don't deal with that problem, and they're very lucky uh, here in the Pacific Northwest, so Oregon, Washington, um, Idaho, potentially California, uh, selenium deficiency is, is pretty well recognized in a range of our herbivore species, including the horse And horses only need one milligram a day um, of this this critical element um, for normal function of muscle and other organs in the body. Uh, But it can be surprisingly difficult for them to get that dose uh, when they're in a deficient region because it's not present very well in the soil or the forage that is grown in our soil. And so if they're not actively supplemented with selenium, There is a risk of deficiency. And uh, in our region, a lot of people have used selenium containing salt blocks as a method of of trying to supplement their horse. But what we found in a large scale study of several hundred horses was horses that were only receiving selenium in a salt block were 20 times more likely to have deficient blood levels. Wow. Now, deficient blood levels don't cause a problem until they get particularly low. But once they're particularly low, it can be catastrophic. So the horse can present with either severe muscle damage and stiffness. About 50% of them will have damage to their heart muscle, which, as you imagine, is not a very good situation. And then a fairly large number of them will lose the ability to use their jaw muscles. And that can uh, sometimes be an irreversible problem as well. So... It's definitely in our best interest to prevent selenium deficiency in the areas that suffer from it, but we also have to be careful because that mineral can be toxic if it's given at too high levels. So we prefer to supplement orally. We don't want to over-supplement, and it's preferable to to go by the oral route to avoid toxicity, Mm -hmm. which is much easier if you inject them with selenium. Now, for vitamin E, uh, the presentation of deficiency Looks a little bit different, um, especially if they encounter deficiency early in life. They can develop signs of ataxia, which is where the horse looks wobbly behind or similar to what people would call a wobbler. As they're more aged and if they're deficient for a long period of time, then they can develop signs like muscle wasting or even severe tremors. And sometimes these horses will present to us with their feet Uh, close together they'll tremor when they're standing they have diffuse muscle wasting Uh, and this is a very severe disorder that we call equine lower motor neuron disease and that is um, a disorder that is quite hard to uh, reverse or treat and about 30% of the horses that we treat will have permanent deficits and may go on to need to be euthanized so Vitamin E deficiency worries me a little bit more uh, because it is something that I believe horses across the nation can be at risk of, mm-hmm. because if they're in a stall, or not having access to green pasture, and they're only fed dry forage products, uh, and they're not supplemented, then any of those horses can be deficient in vitamin E. So we really want horses to be getting at least 1,000 units of vitamin E a day if they're in work or have high physiologic demands, and they probably need more than that. Um, but it's a deficiency that um, is likely not to cause you significant problems unless it's prolonged and severe. But once it does, it can be
0: irreversible. Wow. And of course, the best way to look at these things is to watch your horse. And if you have any questions, ask your veterinarian. So what might horse owners say to their veterinarians if they suspect something like this is going on with a muscle disorder?
1: Well, I think with tying up, certainly owners are going to potentially notice some of the signs that may indicate a muscle disorder. As I said, they can be, they can be Challenging signs and confusing signs. And so they might think they're dealing with a lameness or a colic or something like that. But looking for that association with exercise is really important. If you are only seeing the problem around exercise, then you might have to be quite suspicious of an underlying exercise induced muscular disorder. Um, With the nutritional disorders, I, I really rather that owners talk to their vets about good nutrition and practice good nutrition because those disorders are. A disease of management; they're very preventable, and the consequences can be disastrous. So, I really prefer to be talking to owners about how to prevent them, not how to treat them or yeah. recognise them. So, you know, making sure horses are getting the minimum requirement for selenium each day, given directly in their feed, and the minimum requirements that they need for vitamin E um, each day, given directly in the feed. Uh, I think that's the best way to to deal with that.
0: Um, and while we're talking, while we're talking about that, I just want to. In- indicate that as as you have said i think before that vitamin all sources of vitamin e are not created equal right
1: yeah so there's there's this division about synthetic versus natural vitamin e Um, there are some advantages to natural vitamin e in that it's better absorbed into the central nervous system for example uh, you may find that it's more bioavailable to the horse, so it's easier to bring blood levels up more rapidly. Uh, But quite honestly, um, synthetic vitamin E can be very effective as well. And um, maybe sometimes... reasonably economic. It depends on what I'm treating. If I'm treating a deficiency, then yeah, I definitely gravitate more towards natural sources of vitamin E. Uh, But if the horse is just requiring daily maintenance, then as long as they're getting vitamin E, that's probably the most important thing, to be honest. So finding an economic source that is easy for the client to feed in the manner that they want to feed it, whether that's a powder or a liquid, for example. So. Good. OK, that's that's a good point then. You know, hypokalemic periodic paralysis is a disorder that many of our quarter horse owners would be very familiar with. Uh, obviously, that's a that's a significant disease of the musculature in those horses will show signs of muscle tremors or weakness uh, or in severe cases where they have uh, both genes uh Affected with the disease, then you may see signs of even asphyxia or cardiac arrhythmias. So it can be fatal in those cases. But um, unfortunately, a lot of our muscle disorders are also linked to positive traits and that's part of the reason that they've been selected for so when you look at hypp for example which is a disease that i just mentioned those horses have larger muscles because they have this abnormal underlying electrical activity going on in their musculature the whole time so they are better muscled they get higher points in the show ring uh, for example so it's been selected for um, and Heterozygosity, where those animals have one uh, allele for that disease, is certainly well accepted and very prevalent. (laughs) Homozygous animals, where they have two disease alleles, are no longer able to be registered by the AQHA, for example, and they're the animals that are more prone to severe signs of the disease. When we look at type 1 polysaccharide storage myopathy, it's proposed that those horses are metabolically efficient. So they're what we call the easy keeper. Uh, So they also look nice and big and fat and glossy, and they (laughs) don't require as much feed potentially to um, induce that body condition. So that maybe is the positive trait associated with that. When you look at recurrent exertional rapamyolysis in thoroughbreds and standard breads, pretty thorough epidemiologic study has shown that both of those breeds are faster racehorses. So their underlying disorder lets their muscle contract and relax more rapidly than a normal horse. And they don't tie up in racing. They only tie up in training. So if you can get them through training, they're actually faster horses. And so that's been selected for. And so when we look at our different disorders in in horses that are genetic in origin, often they are accompanied by some sort of positive trait. And for that reason, we're now looking at some of these disorders having a prevalence of up to 60% in some of the specific populations that we work with. So. You know, there's definitely pros and cons here, and it's a very controversial kind of um, uh, perspective on the topic, right? Because we normally think disease is bad, but sometimes it brings good things that we want as well. And so we're trying to pick this balance between the disorder and and the positive traits it brings.
0: Yeah. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our horse owning audience about, you know, some of these muscle disorders? Yeah, I think the most important things are,
1: um, for my mind, be familiar with which disorders you can get a validated genetic test for. So that would be hyperkalemic periodic paralysis, polysaccharide storage myopathy 1, malignant hypothermia, the myosin heavy chain 1 mutation, which is one of our newer muscular disorders, and glycogen branching enzyme deficiency. So they're really the five muscular disorders that we know of in horses that have scientifically validated genetic tests. The ones that we don't have scientifically validated genetic tests for yet are Recurrent exertion or in the thoroughbreds and standardbreds, myofibrillar myopathy in the warm bloods and Arabians, and polysaccharide storage myopathy too, which tends to affect warm bloods and sometimes quarter horses. So those diseases are particularly problematic because we know they're there and we know something about them, uh, but we don't have a great way to test for them beyond muscle biopsy at this time. Um, And I think the second thing that I'd say about that, too, is, as I've mentioned before, just because a horse carries a specific allele for a disease doesn't mean that it will have the clinical signs of disease, that it does have to be uh, brought out, so to speak, by the different management factors, exercise regimes and so on that people um, utilize. So the good news for that point is that that allows you also to be able to manipulate it. If you can figure out what the triggering factors are for some of these disorders, you have the chance to manipulate them. Um, I think also when you do genetic testing, looking at, is this an animal that's homozygous and has two disease alleles, or is it a heterozygous animal with one disease allele? Because that's going to uh, potentially affect the severity of the trait. It's also going to influence breeding that animal right if you breed a homozygous animal it will without doubt pass on one of the disease alleles if you're breeding a heterozygous animal you're decreasing your chance of passing along the disease allele and all of these disorders can be homozygous except for malignant hypothermia we don't recognize homozygous individuals for that disorder and we believe it's probably related to them dying in utero they can only be heterozygous okay These diseases can also interrelate with each other. So, for example, PSSM-1 horses, if they're homozygous, will be more severe. But if they're heterozygous or homozygous and also have the malignant hypothermia allele, they'll be more severe. So I think if you are going forward with genetic testing, doing comprehensive genetic testing where you're running something like the AQHA five-panel or six-panel testing where you're getting multiple diseases, I think has, has value
0: as well. Good, good advice. Okay. And Dr. McKenzie, is there anything else that you'd like to um, mention on this today? I'm just quickly looking back at some
1: of my slides here, trying to decide if there's anything else that <laughs> I should be sharing. It's such a massive topic. I mean, I love muscle, but I've spent 20 years looking at it and it just oh. amazes me how much there is to know about it. And Absolutely. it really is the hidden system. You know, I think it helps, it helps us to recognize that in certain breeds of horse, like the thoroughbred, muscle is over 50% of the animal. You know, it's a massive system. It's a very complicated system. It can take up to 80% of the blood supply during exercise, for example. So it is an incredible organ in the animal, and it is very prone to disease in the horse, unfortunately, compared to other animals. Um, and those signs of disease can be super confusing, and and especially for People that have never encountered it before or veterinarians that aren't familiar with some of these some of these challenges, uh, it can be a very difficult topic. But uh, the good news is that we have a whole basic array of diagnostic testing that is easy to utilize, relatively economic, uh, and there's always people that you can consult with. So, you know, no one should be scared of muscle disorders. Um, they can be easily missed, but they can also be easily overdiagnosed. And I think that's the challenge with any disease disorder that we deal with as vets trying to strike that right balance
0: between what is likely and what is meaningful. Well, I think this has been a wonderful talk today and I really appreciate Dr. McKenzie you joining us today on Equus Farm Calls and a big thanks to our audience for joining us. And if you have any suggestions or comments, feel free to contact me at K Brown. that's the letter K Brown at equinenetwork.com. Equus Farm Calls is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.